All right, you guys know the drill by now. Grab your Bibles, grab your device, grab your ancient scrolls, whatever you got the word on this morning, turn to Ezra chapter four. If you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version so you can track with us. Week four in our series through Ezra. We're gonna go through over two chapters this morning. So we're gonna bite off way more than we can chew. It's just how we're doing it. Um, so I, hope, I hope, we can, hope we can all stay together this morning. Sometimes it feels like the world is against us. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had those days? Have you ever had those weeks? Okay, have you ever had those years? Some of you are having that life, right? Where it just feels like the world is against us. And we've had those moments, all of us can relate to those moments, those days that sort of are etched in your memory, right? Because it just seemed like anything that could go wrong goes wrong. You get a flat tire, you simultaneously lose your wallet, you drop your cell phone into the toilet, you know, there's a blizzard right when you're trying to get out of town. Just little things where it just feels like I can't get ahead today. It's as if there's some conspiracy against me. And sometimes it's even more significant than that. You know, there's, there's light things like that where we're, it's annoying, but we're going to get through the day and we're going to wake up to tell another story. Sometimes it's more significant. We lose our position at our job, right? Because someone is just out to get us. They have it out for us and they're succeeding. Someone maybe makes a really bad decision that, that we didn't have much part of, but it greatly affects our lives. Or sometimes we are just, we're harmed by people emotionally or maybe we're injured physically. The reality is that when we look into scripture, man, we are not given this sort of like ocean liner um, we're going out on a cruise to the Caribbean experience. That is not what scripture promises God's people. That, that is not the experience that we see that the people in scripture have as they're going through life. What we see is that God's people face trouble. What we see is that God's people go through fiery trials. They're faced with temptation. The unexpected happens all the time to the point where it, it should become more expected but for us, in the way that we're all wired, unless we're the most like Eeyore of people, um, we're still surprised when, when bad things happen. We're surprised when it all kind of goes south on us. There's something in us that just goes, I can't believe it. I can't believe that just happened to me. And yet, like the day before, we, we, were in, we had that same level of disbelief, right? Sometimes it feels like the world is against us. We sing this song called, Is He Worthy? sometimes on Sunday. And there's a line that says, do you feel the world is broken? And then we respond and we say, we do, right? Like, like nobody's saying, well, let me think about that for a minute. We're all locked into the reality that we live in a broken world. We know that, we see it, we feel it, we experience it. I was talking to Melissa, we used to read our daughter when she was Little, it's gonna date me. I'm, I'm gonna dad all you guys. I'm gonna show, I'm gonna show that I, I indeed am was in, from the 1940s when I say this. But we, we, um, we used to read these books called what were they called? Little Critter books. Does anybody know those? Is that still a thing? It's like no, it's not, old man. Um, but there was this one book in particular that we used to read, and it was called A Crummy Day, right? And the little critter was just having a crummy day. And every page was another example of how the world was against him. But our kiddo was, you know, she was like four years old. And even she could understand the concept of what it meant to move through a broken world. 
And that's what we all are faced with. That is a commonality that we share. Now, what, what is strange about that? What can appear strange? What can be disorienting about that for us is that God actually allows that kind of opposition in our lives. So he allows us to have those crummy days. He allows us to experience those weeks where it just feels like the world's against us or those seasons where it just feels like I don't know what's going on right now, but I feel like I'm facing opposition from every side. He allows opposition into our lives. He does it in order to to sanctify us. He does it in order to refine us. He does it in order to remind us, as we learn from Ephesians chapter 6, that, man, this whole thing that we're facing in our lives is not so obvious. It's not so apparent because he says we we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul is saying there's other stuff going on here. He's saying, but we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers. What? over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So because this opposition is real, but it's oftentimes unseen, like what Paul tells us, we must resist the temptation when we are facing opposition and trials to compromise our faith. Right? Because that, that's the first thing that we're tempted to sort of walk away from or we're tempted to get lax on. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, look, Be sober-minded. He said, be watchful. He said, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Peter goes on to say, resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, he says, the God of all grace, who has called you. We just read about that call, and we read Romans 8, 28, who has called you you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, he'll confirm, he'll strengthen, he'll establish you. So God allows opposition in our lives because he's trying to do something in our lives. He's trying to call us to courage and to show himself as being more powerful than the forces that actually oppose us. And this is what we're going to get a glimpse of in today's passages as, as we go through the book of Ezra. If you remember Ezra, over the last couple of weeks, this is, Ezra's a scribe, he's a priest, he's, he's chronicling some events for us in the life of the nation of Israel. After they'd gone into Babylonian captivity, um, they'd been removed from their land, and all of a sudden, they get a decree from a guy, a Persian king named Cyrus, to say, hey, go back to Jerusalem, go back to your homeland, rebuild the temple, gather yourselves together again as a nation, and that's what they do. They get back to Jerusalem. We saw last week that they laid the foundation for the temple, and then it erupted in this simultaneous like chorus of both rejoicing and weeping. Weeping because some of the older people were there. They remembered the first time that the temple was being built. And then some of the younger people were rejoicing because God had gathered them back to the land and they were going to get to reestablish themselves before the Lord. That's what the temple represented. It represented a nation that was going to get back into the graces of God and function as a people that were worshiping him, that were not living in disobedience anymore. Even though they were still in captivity, Um, They were given a certain level of freedom now to return to worshiping God. And so that's where we left off last week. And now in these passages today, kind of interesting for us, right? So you're going to have to really be careful and follow me through this. It gets a little complex because the passages today cover four kings and 100 years 
of history. We just want to make this easy for you this week. So what I'm going to attempt to do is just distill this down for us. And if I can give you a little clue for what this is like, if you've ever watched a Christopher Nolan film, um, like Inception or Interstellar or Dunkirk, you know how much this dude loves to take his audience through these just these large, sweeping passages of time that make the movies seem completely overwhelming and confusing because they are. That's just how he writes. So th this is similar to that. Ezra's, Ezra's kind of the Christopher Nolan of his age in the way that he's taking us through his, his writings when we get to Ezra chapter 4. Now at first, let me just tease this up a little bit. At first, we learn that opposition to rebuilding the temple begins. And it begins when certain people in the land ask to join up with the Israelites in the rebuilding of the temple. If you look down in verse chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, these are the people that are back in the land, heard that the returned exiles were building a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, one of their leaders, and the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, Hey, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asirhaddon, king of Syria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, who is the priest, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what we have here are some people that are trying to frustrate the building process. And at first you look at that and you might go, what's the big deal, man? I mean, can we, you know, does everything have to be so exclusive? I mean, these guys are willing to help. Maybe they have some resources. Can't, can't Israel have invited them in and let them be a part of that process? Well, the problem was is that they just didn't worship the God of Israel only. The God of Israel was one of the gods they worshiped. And one of the things that Israel did in the past that just jacked them up was that they would get in with other nations that worshiped other gods and form partnerships. And that's what led them off the rails. And that's what led them to things like being captured by the Babylonians and going into exile for 70 years. So these brothers are learning from that. And they're like, no, here's the thing. You actually don't worship our God. You worship a multitude of gods. You are a polytheistic uh, society. And that just doesn't vibe with us. We're going to have to build the temple on our own. Those are the instructions that we were given. God has called us to do this exclusively. Then Ezra does this crazy thing after verse 5, right? With no warning, where he takes us years into the future when the Israelites would face, by the way, similar opposition for attempting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which we're going to learn about when we hit Nehemiah. And a letter was written to the king in order to suspend their progress. So now just kind of flash forward Christopher Nolan style years and years into the future. And we pick up here in verse 12 um, and it's, in verse 11, it says, this is the, a copy of the letter that was sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Obviously, they have some issues with Jerusalem. 
They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So you have this group of people years and years later that are opposing the rebuilding of the Jerusalem walls. And you get up to verse chapter 4, verse 21. And it says, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to, to the hurt of the king? And then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshay, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem by force and power made them cease. So all of this is something where it just feels like, Ezra, help me here. Why is this included in this, in this, just this chronicle of the Jewish people returning to Jerusalem to build a temple? Well, he's trying to say that, hey, in the life of God's people, they face opposition. And just like these people faced opposition in rebuilding the temple, they were going to have faced opposition years and years later when they were attempting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So when we return back to the temple here in verse 24, we see that those who opposed the Israelites ended up being successful because in verse 24 it says again we're back to the temple now the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia so there was King Cyrus now there's a new king in place and 10 years have passed because Zerubbabel because Josh Joshua didn't resist this opposition that had come Against them. So 10 years have passed before two prophets named Haggai and Zechariah, they come to Zerubbabel. They come to Jeshua. They encourage them to begin rebuilding the temple once again. Now go with me to chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. This is what it says. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to him and spoke to them thus. Hey, who, I added the hey, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And they also asked him this, what are the names of the men who are building this building, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So as temple construction got underway, this governor, this guy named Tatanai, Wrote a, I'm going to pronounce it differently every time, just in case you're wondering. Wrote a letter to King Darius, the king that followed King Cyrus, to see whether the Israelites had authorization to actually begin the rebuilding process. And he says in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, this governor said, Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. This governor wanted to shut down the process. He didn't like what the Israelites were doing. So he appeals to the new king and says, hey, they're just saying they have permission. 
And I'm trying to find out where they have it in writing that there's permission because they don't have those documents. Let me know if you have those documents. And we see as we get to chapter 6, verse 2, that the documents were found. It says a scroll is found. And King Darius lays out a new decree to the governor. And we're going to pick back up in chapter 6, verse 6. And it says, now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Balzani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, look, look what he says, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, he's doubling down. He says, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed. Bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So we see the way this thing has turned around. I hope you're still with me. If you're not, there's nothing I can do about that, right? I'm just gonna be praying for you up here. What we know and how we can summarize this is that the rebuilding of the temple is delayed for 10 years. But after Governor Tatanai tries to stall it completely, King Darius not only approves of the rebuilding, but he tells the governor that, buddy, you're going to help actually pay for it, right? And if this feels complicated, it's because it is, right? But here's what we know. And this is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time together. And it's that God's people always face opposition. But within that opposition is the face of God. And that is something that is deeply important for us to remember. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to make two observations about opposition and what that looked like for them and what that looks like for us as the church. The first point is this. God knows no opposition. Now, if that's kind of the no-duh moment for you, um, I want to tease this out. I want to unpack this a little bit because, in fact, we live our lives as if God knows nothing but opposition. We do. But the reality is that all through Scripture, nothing can stand in the way of the will of God, right? I mean, the, the best and worst equivalent I can, I can just, I can even think of in the moment, it'd be like saying that at some point an ant is gonna have some power to overthrow y'all, right? It's impossible. There's never going to be a moment in your life unless somebody creates some kind of a ray gun that can shrink you down to below the size of an ant that an ant will have the power to ever go against anything you will for that ant. I'm going off the rails right now with the ant thing. But there's nothing, you know, but you can see the ridiculousness of it, right? You can see the ridiculousness of it. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. What do we learn in Ezra week one? God is unconstrained. He knows no opposition. When we read Psalm chapter two, we are told that the Lord laughs when kingdoms and rulers, when they rise up in opposition to his will. God had clearly called the Israelites back to Jerusalem. He was going to accomplish his will through them and they could be sure of that. What they couldn't know 
What we can't know was what kind of opposition they were going to face along the way. And this helps paint a picture for the kind of life the church should expect. God knows no opposition, but we do. We do. Paul describes it well in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 when he says, but we have this treasure. In other words, he's saying this, this, everything that we've been given for life and godliness that comes through Jesus Christ, we've been given this as a treasure, but it comes in jars of clay. He describes us as jars of clay, things that aren't strong, but they break easily and they're fragile. And he says, and he says they come in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. Then he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always caring in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So, Some of you have experienced affliction in so many ways in your life. I've talked to many of you that have. And yet, you've not been crushed in an ultimate sense. You're still here. You've not been driven to despair in an ultimate sense. You've had seasons of that, but you are still here. You are still faithful. You are still seeking after the face of the Lord. You've not been forsaken. The Lord is still walking with you. He is still for you. You have not been destroyed. You are alive today. You are breathing today. God has given you second chances. He's given you new opportunities. He's brought people around you to encourage you. Somehow, you are being sustained. God is refining you. God is purifying you. He is... He's killing your sin. He's elevating and illuminating Jesus Christ in you. God's people always face opposition. Always. But within that opposition is the face of God because he knows no opposition. That should encourage us this morning as we reflect on the Israelites, reflect on the complications And everything that they faced that stalled out the process. And even some of the ways that they kind of backed away and they were a little timid. And they shouldn't have been. God still eventually brings them around and opens up a new door and a new path for them to get on and get going with the work that he's given them. God knows no opposition. Secondly, God calls for courage. God calls for courage. I'm going to get into some things here, but let me start by saying this. God calls for courage. God doesn't call you to be foolish. All right? But he does call you to do the faithful thing when you are tempted to be timid. We're going to tease this out for a minute. So how do we define courage then? You talk about courage. God calls us to be courageous. He called the Israelites here to be courageous. Well, all right, great. What is courage? Well, this is what it is. It is the ability to do something that frightens you. Here's another way to put it. To act in the face of opposition and fear. To 
obey the Lord even if the consequences create crisis in your life. Now, this is what I want to tease out. I want to be very careful about this. This never means that we ignore wisdom. All right? It never means that we act out our faith like bulls in china shops. Now, I want to chat about that for a minute because in the last couple of years, we have seen people in the church that have adopted this phrase, faith over fear. And they've done it as a response largely to, to COVID and things that have all kind of fit into that, that particular lane. And let me just say this. There is some truth to that response. Faith over fear, right? The Bible tells us not to fear. Over and over again in Scripture, what are we told? Fear not. Trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lean not into our own understanding, the Bible simultaneously tells us to use wisdom. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that faith over fear can be foolishness if it's a faith that ignores godly wisdom. Let me unpack that a little bit further. This means that a faith that lacks wisdom is actually faithlessness because a faith that is not grounded in good counsel and in sound-mindedness does not lead to fruitfulness. And decisions that we make that don't lead to fruitfulness don't come out of a heart of faithfulness. That's where wisdom comes in. Proverbs 17, 24 says, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Do you guys get what that's saying? The discerning sets his face towards wisdom. So whatever we do, whatever kind of decision-making thing that we're diving into, whatever season of life we're in where, where man, we're, we're being called on to make a courageous move from the Lord, we do it with looking towards wisdom as our guide. We do it looking towards counsel, godly counsel to, to guide us. We use, it, we use wisdom as a way to, to understand what it means to have sound-mindedness in a decision, not to just plow through something and just do something with our t-shirt that says faith over fear. Because faith over fear without godly wisdom is stupidity. Do you guys get that? That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach us blow the door down because that's faith over fear. No, that lacks wisdom because there's someone on the other side of that door that's going to get crushed. That's not, that's not the way of Jesus. Get a little passionate about that right now. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are everywhere else, on the ends of the earth. Where am I going? How do I react? How do I respond? I see you over there, God. That's cool. That's not the call for the church. Could God save you if you walked to the roof of the warehouse and jumped off? He could. But should that be the motivation for you to jump off the roof? It should not. Why? Because God also gave you a mind to calculate and determine that an ill-advised leap off of a three-story building is not good for your legs 
or your heart? Could God save you from intruders breaking into your house? Absolutely. He does it all the time. But he generally does it through these inventions called door locks and alarms, which we all use. Does wearing a seatbelt prevent you from getting in an accident? It does not. But God uses seatbelts every day to save people from injury and death in the case of an accident. You know what that is right there? That is setting our face toward wisdom and within the means that God has given to us to be courageous. I mean, it's old hat for us, but every time we get into an automobile, it's, it's kind of courageous. I mean, nobody goes that fast on their feet, you know? <laughs> it's a courageous thing, right? It's kind of a foolish thing, though, if I just go, you know what? I don't believe all those seatbelt laws. Okay. Courage with wisdom. Now, listen, I'm going to bring it down a little bit and settle down. There are times when we need to make faithful decisions, even though they come with a potential for danger and a high level of fear. We don't face those things often, really, where we are in our Western society. But this is where courage comes in. Courage is what God calls us to when we need to take costly steps of faith in order to obey God. The Israelites needed courage in this moment instead of letting progress cease. God had them covered. They had opposition. That wasn't the time for them to shrink back in fear and get timid. God had given them the ability. He had given them the means. He had given them the heart to begin this process knowing that there was going to be opposition. They pulled back and it cost them a decade. They needed to have courage. But for us, for the church, living in a Western society on this side of Christ's death and resurrection, it's not always as clear who our opposition or our enemies are. We like to, we like to draw those lines pretty black and white, but on this side of the cross, on this side of the Sermon of the Mount, on this side of the kind of instruction that Jesus very clearly gives us, it's not always so clear. In fact, Jesus had some peculiar things to say about how we treat our enemies, didn't he? Which is what we need courage for today. In other words, since Christ has conquered our greatest enemy on the cross, which is our sin, and proven, by the way, that it was effective because he rose from the dead three days later, we can now treat those who rise up as enemies of our faith differently. There's a time to say, hey, if you're telling me that I can't worship, if you're telling me that I can't pray, if you're telling me that I can't open my Bible, if you're telling me that I can't gather with other Christians, these are things that other nations are experiencing all the time. That's when we go, all right, we're taking this thing underground. We're going to have some courage. We're going to do this. Because that's what God has called us to do. And we need courage and wisdom to obey him in those particular moments. But when we think about who is our opposition today, we think about who our enemies are today, we think of the ways that Jesus instructed us in how to be courageous. Right? Jesus said we can be courageously kind. 
He said we can be courageously empathetic. He said we can be courageously bold too, especially when our speech is seasoned with salt. So don't hear me saying, hey, this is all grace, no truth. No, those two things have to be hand in hand. Because our spiritual enemy has been conquered, we can be courageous like Jesus to our physical enemies. Matthew 10, Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body. Have the right kind of fear. Be fearful of the right person. He said, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to fear the right person. When we are constantly leaning into a deeper fear and reverence and awe of the Lord, it's going to change how we treat everybody, right? Because we have a particular kind of confidence. Again, not a bull in a china shop confidence. That's called arrogance. But we have a compassionate kindness that seeks to understand while reflecting the truth and sometimes really hard words of Jesus that we believe in, that we hold to, that we communicate with grace. For the Israelites, they had been called to rebuild the temple. They had been given permission by King Cyrus. But then they faced opposition. But then God gave Zerubbabel and Joshua courage to face their opposition and complete what God called them to do. So they courageously, it tells us, begin to build again. We need to be courageous in our faith, not as foolish people who try to be aggressive and in people's faces, but as humble servants who want to walk in the way of Jesus with gentleness and conviction. So here's how I'm gonna close by this question. Who do you face opposition against today? It might be, might be obvious for some of you. Maybe it's a person or a situation in your life that is pushing you. Just, you feel like, man, I'm just getting so much pressure. Maybe they're pushing you to doubt your faith. Maybe you're, maybe you're with a, a person or an organization or a group of people or a family member. and Man, you're, you're around them and you feel pressure. You can feel that opposition. You're tempted to become timid. Maybe some of you just have a, an injury. Maybe there's a physical injury that has just been nagging at you for a long time. Maybe some of you have an ongoing illness. Maybe some of you, it's just been really hard getting over some of these COVID variants. And man, I'm feeling the fatigue. And you know, I, it, this thing has just been, it's just been nagging at me. It's ongoing. Maybe it's, maybe it's just been a season of incredible setbacks for you. Maybe you've been tempted to pull back from the Lord, pull back from your church family because it just feels too hard. Jesus understands that place to be in. Maybe your opposition is a, a very subtle sin that is keeping you from growing in your faith. Maybe for you, opposition is that you're in a season of blessing. Have you ever thought about it that way? the biggest opposition you might be facing is something you consider to be a blessing. Your job is, man, it's exploding. Money is in the bank. You've achieved some success. You're in a good place with relationships or maybe your marriage. But these are the very things that are making you complacent toward the Lord and toward the church. They are, in fact, opposing forces. So what might God then 
be calling you to resist today and instead move courageously toward the Lord in obedience over. There might be some repentance in order as well. There usually is, by the way. Because in order to not be resistant to God, I need you to hear this. In order to not be resistant to God, you must resist the thing that is pulling you from being obedient to him. And the encouragement comes from James chapter 4, verse 6, where James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us by telling us he gives more grace. You got it. You have the grace to be courageous. You have the grace to resist those things that are opposing you in all the different ways that we just teased out. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So just submit yourselves to God, he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's about us coming before the Lord, acknowledging our lack of courage, acknowledging the oppositions that face us and say, Lord, I, I just need, I need help. I need help you because my tendency is just to back away from you. My tendency is to not want to get into it. My tendency is to flee instead of fleeing the right things. The good news is that because Jesus resisted the opposition that was put before him, we now have the same spirit in us to do the same. And if you go to him today, if God has brought, surfaced something in you that is stirred in you and said, Man, I, I do lack courage. I have been compromising my faith. I haven't been humble about that. I've let other things create detachments. If you just go before the Lord in humility and honesty, He's going to bless you and forgive you and he's going to pull you back in and you're going to experience freedom and flourishing and the arms of a faithful father that is not resistant to you but wants to just pull you in and just wants to wrap his arms around you, wants to tell you it's going to be okay. You are my son you are my daughter. There is a future for you with me because I know no opposition. And I am the one who is going to give you courage in your greatest time of need. Just come on in. Come to me. Let's do that. Let's pray for that right now. Lord, we thank you that you don't resist us even when we are not resisting the things that are opposing us, even in that moment, you are getting nearer and closer to us and you are bidding us to come closer to you. So Lord, we pray today that we would do that. Lord, that we would be a church that has a growing reverence and awe and fear of you, that we would be courageous with wisdom that we would lean into the way of Jesus, that we would be a church, Lord, that sees the world through your eyes, that sees the work that you're doing. Lord, we face so many things, it feels like the world is against us, when in reality, the world is against you. 
and because of your work on the cross, because you rose again in three days, because you have called us to you out of the world and into your presence, because we now have a righteousness that's not contained in the world, but has been applied to us by your death and resurrection. Lord, anything that we face now is not faced alone. And we thank you for this truth. It's a dramatic truth. I pray that it helps us, it changes us, and it humbles us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.